Well, welcome back, everyone. We have a good friend, uh, Jeremy Newman with THSE, Texas Homeschool Coalition, with us. We're at the homeschool convention here in the Woodlands, Texas, and we're excited to talk about some of the issues that homeschoolers and families and parents deal with. And first of all, I just want to tell you a funny story, Jeremy. Uh, I was actually at a restaurant the other day with my sister and brother-in-law, and I said something kind of funny because the waitress, she was awesome. She was just so good. And to give you a little background, I've been teaching at a college for about seven years, and all of my best students, the best behaved, the best grades, like the, the best social skills, in my opinion, are homeschool kids. And so I was about to say to this girl, like, hey, you're a really awesome waitress. You must have been homeschooled. And my sister was like, Christian, don't say that to her. <laughs> like, She's like, because that actually would be offensive to her. She wouldn't have any context for why you would say something like that. And she would assume that maybe that you're, you're, that you were implying that she didn't have good people skills or something. So uh, just, just a funny story to, to start off with. Uh, <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, Jeremy, tell me about your background and, and uh, your bio and, and, and uh, how you got started with THSC. Yeah, so uh, my background was homeschooled in Texas all the way growing up, and uh, my, my wife was too. And we, we both did speech and debate in high school. It's actually how we met each other. And so I had a little bit of a, a political bent, a political interest that I think grew out of that. And then back in 2013, uh, actually some people who I had known and debated with from high school were going to work the legislative session in Texas in 2013. They invited me to come down and be part of THSC's lobby team that year. So I did. That was called the THSC Watchman Program, and I went down and participated in that. And then uh, that fall, I came on staff with THSC, and I've been on staff ever since. That's awesome. Well, you've really grown and moved up in the organization, so uh, that's really evident and I also have some speech and debate background as well. Did that in college, and I also coached a speech team uh, in grad school. So that's cool that we share that in common. Um, so Tim Tebow is in the news. Uh, he's had a baseball career. He was obviously a, a major quarterback in the NFL and, and, uh, and before that in college football. Now he's coming back to the NFL, and he's going to be a tight end with the Jaguars. And some people like that, some people don't. Uh, I'm a huge fan. I think he's lived a really incredible life and uh, married Miss Universe, so he didn't do too bad there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was homeschooled. Many people don't know that. And he's also a huge pro-life advocate and really speaks out vocally for that. He speaks at the Passion Conference. He's doing so many incredible things. And um, there's something called the Tim Tebow Bill. That's, it's, that's a nickname. But what is the bill really called? And tell us about that bill and what's going on with it. Yeah, so uh, people around the country and other states that have done this especially would know it probably as the Tim Tebow bill. In Texas, it's called the UIL Equal Access Bill. And basically, the function of it is to say, look, you have all these homeschool students around Texas who live in these school districts and they're paying taxes to support these school districts and the extracurricular activities at those districts. They should be allowed to participate in those extracurricular activities in those districts. And so um, there are, you know, 37 in just in the last month there have been two more so there are 37 states now that allow this to be done homeschoolers to participate in their local school district in the public school extracurricular activities and we have a bill that we've been working on for about 20 years in texas to get that done and we just had it this legislative session passed the house passed the senate has one more kind of formal procedural vote in the house and it's going to be on the governor's desk and so uh, we are really excited and optimistic about it this time around because the problem that you have in texas and I guess in, in most states where you don't have this type of access is that 
you know, if, if you live in a metropolitan area as a homeschool student, you, you can probably find some extracurricular options, but they're really expensive because they're private, right? But you're already paying the taxes at, for the activities at the local public school, so you're paying double now for these activities. And if you live in a rural area as a homeschool student, there's a great chance that you have few to no extracurricular options at all. And I talk to families sometimes who they drive three or four hours one direction to the nearest possible opportunity even though their local public school that they're paying for is down the street. And so the, the position we've taken for a long time is just to say there is no reason it makes sense to force a family to make that choice, right? They're paying for these opportunities already, so let them use the style of education that best fits their students' needs and then also give them access to these opportunities that other students have that they're already paying for. Right. Well, that's... I couldn't agree more. I mean, they should have every opportunity that uh, public schoolers have if they're already paying the taxes. Um, Well, I want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to ask you about this legislative session. Obviously, uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick has just called for a special session. There have been some bills that have not been even attended to, um, and there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, and the Texas Freedom Caucus has also called for a special session Uh, But as of right now, it doesn't look like it's going to go that way. And so there needs to be um, obviously some work done, but who knows if it'll get done. Uh, What would you say some of the biggest victories have been uh, during this session so far as it relates to THSC and um, and, and homeschool families? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I I speak from kind of the, the family rights homeschooling perspective and other groups, people might have different opinions about how their own legislative agenda went. But for us, you know, we're looking at issues that relate specifically to homeschooling or even more broadly to pretty much anything that affects the right of parents to raise their children. And we we kind of came to the realization more than a decade ago that you have to defend that deeper right of families to raise their children in the first place in order to be able to maintain the right to homeschool because it's built on that foundation. And so that's why during the legislative session, you'll see our team taking positions on bills that relate to you know, family rights issues and the family law courts and CPS systems. And and a lot of people know us from some of our work in some kind of high profile CPS cases like the the Bring Drake Home campaign, the Pardo case from a couple years ago. And so the biggest success I would say that we had this legislative session was getting the Child Trauma Prevention Act passed. And that was, to my knowledge, it is the most significant pro-family CPS reform bill to ever pass in Texas. And it's really kind of amazing to me that it passed with as much support as it did. I I believe it only had five votes against it in the House, and it was unanimous in the Senate. And that's just not normal, right? In fact, when we worked on pretty much the same bill uh, two years ago, there there was a lot of opposition to it. it. didn't even get out of the calendars committee in the House. And what changed during the interim is that we kind of sat down with a work group of different organizations and people and tried to tweak language to get everybody on board with it. And so when we came into the session, this legislative session, we had a consensus bill. And so we just tried to maintain that through the session and evidently, it, you know, it, it was maintained that way. And so uh, that already passed completely, went to the governor's desk um, and it's going to, it, it's already law now and it's going to be in effect starting September 1st of this year. And maybe to give people some context on exactly what that does, there are, I think, uh, nine ended up being the number of of different specific issues that were kind of all packed together in that bill. Probably the most significant one was that we changed the definition of neglect 
in Texas because most people don't realize that you know you talk about all the cases of abuse, but the vast majority of children who are removed by CPS are removed for what's called neglectful supervision. And the way that definition was written in Texas law, you are allowed to remove a child based on your speculation that at some point in the future they might be neglected. And so the problem we had with that, obviously, was that you know you are traumatizing a child when you remove them from your, their home. That is guaranteed. And so what are you weighing that against? And, you know, Gene Wu, who's a, a CPS attorney, progressive Democrat representative from Houston, he spoke in favor of the bill on the House floor because his personal experience led him to this. And, and what he said really resonated with me where he said, look, we're asking this question as a state now of whether it is worth it to remove a child from their home knowing you will traumatize them and weighing that against the risk that if you don't remove them, something might happen to them in the future. And he said, and as a state, what we're saying with this bill is it's not worth it. If you're going to remove a child from their home, you need to have some type of imminent harm that you're protecting them from because you know you will traumatize them if you remove them. That's really incredible. And we've um, obviously got more work to do, but this is a very positive development, I think. And, um, uh, what's your take on the session? I mean, should there be a special session or um, not? Yeah, so I mean, I would say as it relates to our issues, it has been a really successful session. In right. fact, I think, frankly, probably the most successful one we've ever had. Wow. And, um, I, you know, I speak only slightly prematurely that our, our UIL bill that we just talked about hasn't technically gotten to the governor's desk yet. It has one more procedural vote in the House, and then we expect the governor to, to sign it. And so, um, you know, if we kind of put that in the in the success box as well at this point, I would say it is definitely the most successful session we've ever had. Wow. And, and so what's on the horizon? What's in the future? What are some of the bills that you're going to be working on getting done in the near future, uh, maybe next session? Yeah, so there are some issues that we worked on that didn't get through this time. So a couple examples would be one of the CPS bills we worked on was to change the child abuse registry. And this became an issue in the Pardo case that a lot of people will know about where you can be placed on the child abuse registry in Texas even if you're found innocent in court. And the consequence of being placed on that registry is that that comes up on background checks. It can keep you from getting a job. You're not allowed to have employment you know, where you're working with children, things like that. And uh, even if everybody agrees you did nothing wrong and the court finds you innocent, you can still be placed on that registry. And this is actually a national problem. A lot of states have this problem. And so we had a bill to fix that in Texas and ended up dying not because anyone was objecting to the policy, but because there were, you know, it, it created a fiscal note on the bill, which basically just means it costs money and the state didn't have money to spend. And so um, we're going to have to work on that before next session to figure out how to do that in a way that doesn't cost enough money that it kills the bill. That's one thing we'll be working on. Another one that we worked on that didn't make it through this time is to end the the current practice that local cities have of creating juvenile curfew ordinances that say, you know, the traditional ones will say something like, you can't be out, you know, a child cannot be out during school hours. And, you know, a lot of people don't think about this, but that disproportionately affects homeschool students in particular because they do not follow standard school hours, right? And so this actually growing up in Dallas, this was an issue for us that my parents told us, you're not allowed to go outside during these hours, we don't want people to see you outside because you're going to have a truancy officer show up at your door, a police officer show up at your door. And so um, we've actually worked with a bipartisan coalition of groups for years now to get those overturned in different cities around the state. 
but uh, it's a big enough problem that we've worked legislatively to just ban the practice across the state and uh, it didn't make it through this time. I actually think it was almost only a, a deadline issue because it, it made it out of the House committee, made it to the House floor, and it uh, made it through the Senate, but all of it too close to the deadline to make it through. Very interesting, and I think um, you've got a lot of work to do in the upcoming session in years to come, so hopefully next session can be as, as successful as this one. Um, I want to ask you about the, your take on the lockdowns that have been, you know, coming throughout uh, mainly in Democrat-led states. It's happened some in Republican states, but they quickly uh, reversed course. But in these Democrat-run states, uh, what are your take on the lockdowns? And I mean, you guys obviously, I mean, you, you're supportive of, of teaching students from home, but um, what is a way that people can be successful in, 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 their, in their endeavors to, to do their schoolwork from home and, and what makes, makes a successful child in the end? Yeah, so I would say the effect that the lockdowns had uh, kind of from the education angle yeah. was that, and I think we're gonna see this over the next 10 years or so, that I think it's going to produce a large number of hybrid forms of education that will be around for the long term. Because what you had was, it's kind of a, a critique on the education system at all uh, across the board where everyone kind of realized that they needed stability and flexibility and the traditional education system offered neither one of those. And so they left, right, in droves, people left. And, and the, you know, the U.S. Census Bureau came out with data just a few weeks ago showing that homeschooling had doubled across the United States last year. It almost tripled in Texas. And I think a significant portion of those people will stick around. And what we've heard from people is that, you know, you, when you're in the traditional public school system, there are issues, you, you kind of build your entire life, right, as a family around that school schedule. And there's not really another option. That's kind of what you have to do because it's, you know, eight hours a day, your student is, uh, your child is at this classroom. And so things that people normally have to deal with, like the logistics that that requires for their family, um, you know, childcare, things that they have to deal with, like all of these things that a traditional family has to deal with that they discovered during the pandemic have solutions to them are things that people are going to want to continue solving now, right? So what we, what we have heard from families have been things like, you know, I didn't realize that if I did education for my child at home, it's not an eight hour ordeal. Right, because you're not teaching 30 kids, you're teaching two or three, or, you know, or just a handful of them, and you can do it in a few hours, right? And that it allows you to be involved in raising your child, not just feeding them, and and that's that's a little bit of a you know a harsh comparison, I suppose, but the the point there being that a significant portion of the families that we have spoken to were forced into this situation of homeschooling, but what they discovered was that it was stable and flexible enough that it offered them an ability to solve issues that their family was dealing with and had been for a long time. And I think what you're seeing in the education system is a system-wide representation of what individual families go through all the time. The system went through crisis, and as a solution, people had to diversify to find solutions to their needs. Individual families go through crisis all the time. And so I think what you're gonna see here is that going forward, people are going to demand hybrid forms of education that provide for a diverse set of options because it, it's just kind of a logical necessity that if you have a diverse set of students who possess a diverse set of needs, there is no way to meet those needs except with a diverse set of options. And so I think that's what people are gonna produce. 
That's a really good take, and I hadn't considered how much homeschooling had grown uh, over the course of the pandemic because I hear all of the complaints from public schoolers that say that they haven't been able to learn as effectively in the same ways because they're getting watered down public education. But for those that switched over to homeschooling, perhaps, you know, it was even, uh, their opportunities were, were, were increased, perhaps, and they and had a lot of success, maybe more than they ever would have had. Yeah, yeah, and I do think that, you know, there are some benefits to online learning, but what we had during the pandemic wasn't really even good online learning. It was basically do what you do in the classroom for eight hours a day, except do it over the computer, right? And that's yeah. that's that doesn't work, right? And so it a lot of Who people wants had, to be on a Zoom call for eight hours. Exactly, yeah. I don't even like a Zoom call for one hour, right? And so, and especially for a student, for a child, that's just it's just not sustainable. And a lot of people realize that. And so when, when I say homeschooling doubled and tripled. We're not even talking about the people who just did school from home. Like we're talking about the people who actually were legally classified as homeschoolers. Yeah. And I think that uh, I think you're right. I, I think that the public education system discovered a lot of its deficiencies, and the way that people are going to have to try and solve that is by diversifying the product. Right, Jeremy, you almost have to go, but I want to ask one thing about what can be done federally because I mean we've looked at at what's being done on the state level here in Texas, but in a perfect world, if you had a Republican president and a Republican Senate and Republican House, what are some of the things that you could do um, to be more effective nationally? What would you advocate for with your elected leaders? So w when it comes to education, I, I'm going to call myself a little bit of a traditionalist in the conservative sense that I honestly think the federal government should have very, very little role in education. Uh, I'm not of the opinion that they've done much good in the education sphere over the years. And you know, you could, I guess, go down this rabbit hole a little bit and say, if they are going to be involved, what are the best ways for them to do that? And I would say that if that's the case, if you're starting from the assumption that they need to be involved somehow, then I think that you know, the only way they're involved pretty much is by providing funds to the state, right? And they do it with strings attached. And those funds need to be in my opinion, diversified to the point where the state can use them to provide a diverse set of education options. Right now, they're fairly limited. Um, there have been proposals to try and, and free those up, um, but I think those would be my two takes. The first Getting one being into that school choice. Yeah, yeah. There's been national school choice legislation considered, and there are a variety of versions of that. Um, one of them would be to allow a student to use their 529 accounts for primary education, not just higher education. Um, but overall, I would say my opinion is that it is best for the federal government to be less involved in education, not more. If they are going to be involved, then the dollars that they're providing to the states need to be, the states need to be able to use that to provide diverse forms of education. It needs to not be siloed to the very traditional types of education. Yeah. So just kind of stay out of your way and then you're good. Pretty much. Pretty <laughs> much. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for being on today. And uh, I think it's going to be a great convention. And uh, I'll probably stick around for a while to uh, meet some good people and learn what I can. All right. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. All right, man. God bless. Take care. You too.